Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Sporticos Football Stories podcast, proudly part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. My name's Craig Hansen, and today we've got something a little bit different for you. Instead of having a usual guest and sitting down discussing fan identity, club identity, all things that make a person a fan, it's going to be me. And we're going to do a sort of quarter season review. I guess you could say we're a little bit over a quarter of the way into the season in most of the major leagues, the ones that we'll be talking about today. Uh, But we are going to have some guests. We're going to hear from eight of our former guests who've been kind enough to be on the show this year. They're going to pop in and let us know how they feel about how their club is getting on so far this season. But in the meantime, I'm also going to give you my opinions. I haven't listened yet to the clips that the guys have sent in because I don't want to sort of cloud my opinion with those. So there could be some interesting uh, differences of opinion coming up. But we'll see what happens. I'm going to give my thoughts on the Premier League in its entirety. Uh, Talk a little bit about my hometown club that I've been following very closely this season. I've been going to all the home games of Warsaw FC in League Two. We're going to get into that. We'll talk a little bit about some teams from outside the Premier League, uh, further down the pyramid, and also abroad. Uh, But we're going to get into that right now. So first thing I want to do is take a look at the bottom half of the Premier League table. Uh, We just got through with an exciting weekend of football in the Premier League uh, after it returned from the international break. There were goals galore. It's a great weekend of football. Uh, I actually just got through watching Match of the Day, so uh, I feel um, more connected to how exciting this weekend was than ever. Um, But we'll start then at the foot of the table, which is now Newcastle. So uh, until yesterday, Norwich were bottom. Well, until uh, yesterday, Norwich have been bottom, I guess, the whole season. I think they've won back-to-back games now, one either side of the international break, uh, Norwich. But we'll come on to those next. But first of all, Newcastle, uh, their new coach, Eddie Howe, wasn't able to be there for the game because he apparently tested positive for COVID. 
So his uh, bright assistant, Jason Tyndall, was in charge. Uh, but they're a great duo, I think. Uh, I'm, I'm expecting big things from from Howe and his and his whole backroom staff this this season. They actually like to coach players. They like to make sure they know what they're doing. They like to improve individual players. And when they've got a little bit of money to spend in January, I expect them to, you know, for sure avoid relegation. But it, it will be probably a tough season for them, especially the hole that they've dug themselves in um, by sticking by Steve Bruce for so long, giving Howe uh, not the easiest task. I mean, they're five points adrift of safety now, and that's assuming that Leeds don't get any points today. Uh, I'm recording this on Sunday the 21st. This is going out tomorrow. So when you're listening to this, if Leeds have won, then Newcastle are in even bigger trouble uh, than they are at the time of recording. But nonetheless, they're in trouble regardless. It's going to be a long old season, but I think they'll have enough because with the investment in January, uh, with Howe, who is a, I believe, a really talented forward-thinking coach who did uh, a sublime job at Bournemouth uh, with a really switched-on backroom staff that he has there, and I think they have enough raw materials in the squad probably to stay up as they are, uh, and especially when they introduce a few more players, uh, I think they'll be okay. But at the moment, they're right down there in the bottom. They were a lot more exciting uh, this weekend. They they were great going forward, scoring a lot of goals. But again, they shipped three. Uh, that gives them a goal conceded score of 27 from 12 games, which is the worst in the league, along with Norwich. So speaking of Norwich, they've climbed off the foot of the table now. Uh, I believe they've won back-to-back games. I think they won just before the international break. Uh, Daniel Farker finally won a Premier League game, but then was immediately sacked and replaced with Dean Smith, who was sacked by Villa, who we're going to come on to. Dean Smith, uh, I thought, was extremely harshly treated by Villa to lose his job. I thought that was uh, a really, really unfair dismissal. Not a fan of it whatsoever. But uh, he's back in action, I guess, a week later or something. He's back at a job at Norwich, and he gets a win in his first game, two in a row for Norwich. I think they've got a lot better chance of staying up with Smith in charge. Uh, You can immediately see how Billy Gilmore and Todd Campwell are back in the team, uh, you know, inexplicably left out for months by Farker. They already look to be a team that are capable of actually causing a threat going the other direction, not just punching bags there for the taking. That being said, uh, unless they invest in January, which I find doubtful because they invested fairly heavily considering the size of the club in the summer. If they don't invest in January and they probably won't, then I can't imagine them being... I can't imagine there being three teams worse than them. But it could be a pretty interesting dogfight down there at the bottom. They're all pretty evenly matched. It's 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 really tough. I mean, one minute you think Watford are going to go down and now you're like, oh, maybe not. Uh, you know, you tell yourself that Burnley can surely never go down. I know that they went down with Deitch that one time years ago in like his second year or something. But since he's brought them back up, they've been ever present. But maybe this could be the year. Leeds are even down there. It's it's a crazy. It's going to be a crazy scrap down there in the bottom sort of six teams. Will Norwich be one of the lucky ones who get out of it? They've got a much better chance now that Dean Smith's in charge, and I think that they'll give a much better account of themselves now than they did last time when they were, you know, sort of Derby County-esque. But I can't imagine them staying up. I I think they'll still go down. But they've got the right man in charge to bring them back up and the right man to at least make this season watchable for their fans and at least give them a fight and at least some belief that they might stay up. Just above them are the aforementioned Burnley, who are starting very slowly and playing sort of a 
interesting, like, kind of different to how they usually do because they, well, I guess they they do have you know they have a lot of games where they don't score, but then they also have games where they do score two or three. And since Cornet has come in, they they do look a lot more of a threat going forward. Uh, he looks to be a great player. Um, but they just can't seem to shore things up at the back. I mean, they've conceded 20 goals in 12, which will be a nightmare statistic for Sean Dyche of all people. But you just feel that they'll turn it around. That they have they have a slow start almost every season. This one's going on fairly long, but I've seen them do this before. I think that that season they qualified for the Europa League. The next year, weren't they right down there for like the first half of the season till Christmas? And then eventually they come out of it. So it's it's tough to bank on them to go down. They've got so much credit in the bank that tells you that they're going to pull themselves out of it. But at the moment, things are looking, you know, not ideal, but also not catastrophic. Um, Leeds, on the other hand, you would say not catastrophic, but their fans will be disappointed because after having come up um, from the championship, winning the championship to having a fantastic first season back, uh, you know, when they sort of turned a lot of heads, uh, impressed a lot of people, I think they finished in the top half and they finished ninth or eighth. Um, you know, it's fantastic work. Obviously, when you do that, um, similar to Nuno at Wolves, you sort of, uh, you know, set very high standards for yourself that are difficult to keep. Now, Nuno was able to to maintain that. I think two years in a row, they finished seventh. It looks like Bielsa is not going to be building on his finish from last season unless they turn things around fairly quickly. Will they be in any real trouble to go down? You'd think, given the quality in their squad, no, and the manager that they have in charge. But at the moment, things just aren't quite clicking for them. I wouldn't use the uh, the sort of narrative about um, second season or whatever, especially given it's like his fourth season in charge. Uh, but, you know, second season in the Premier League, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people talking about the fact that they're tired, whatever. I don't really see that. They've been unlucky with some injuries. I know Bamford was out and maybe still is out, I think, for... Um, quite a significant amount of time. Luke Ayling, I think they even lost Phillips for a few games. So they've been a bit unlucky with injuries to key players. It's not quite working out right now, but you do feel that sooner or later they'll they'll sort of get going and probably have a comfortable mid-table finish. But that's the thing, you say that about a lot of these teams, don't they? I feel that about Burnley. I feel that about Newcastle. I feel that about Villa. I mean, so who is going to go down? <laughs> Someone has to go down. So for one of these teams... Uh, this optimism isn't going to pay off, I guess. But we'll find out now what a uh, what a true hardened Leeds fan thinks of the situation. So Joe Brennan was our inaugural guest, actually, on the show in our first ever episode when uh, the great Ander Aitoralde was hosting the show with me. We had Joe on to speak about the Republic of Ireland um, because despite being a Yorkshire native, Joe is also deeply Irish. Uh, genetically and and uh, feels a deep connection with the Republic of Ireland, so we had him on to uh, to talk about that during the Euros. And one day we need to get him on to talk Leeds. But for today, he's been kind enough to send us in a few minutes of his thoughts on Leeds' season so far. Uh, let's hear what he thinks about how they're getting on. Leeds United this season are finally coming to realise that the world's not actually made of chocolate and sweets and other nice things. But in fact, it can be quite difficult to survive and play well and prosper in the Premier League. The club has struggled so far as we come into Christmas. But at the time of recording, we're at the end of November, beginning of December. Only Norwich, 
who've looked as good as gone, and Watford, who've had more managers than we do fit players, have suffered defeat against us. The team has recently shown signs of life, but for the most part, it's been quite a challenge to do two things. One is to get the ball from our goalkeeper to our strikers, and the second thing is when the ball's with our strikers, put the ball in the net. As reductionist as it sounds, the reason why those two things are difficult, which those two things are quite important, is because of the lack of fit players we've had in the squad. I don't want that to sound as an excuse, but when Bamford's been out for months now and he scored 17 goals last season, and then Luke Ayling, who was the the right-back with the most progressive runs in Europe last season, we have found it really difficult to do the two things that I mentioned. The players that have come in over summer, Junior Firpo and Dan James, the two standout names, they've been okay. Firpo's injured, obviously, as coming from Barcelona, where the training regime was relaxed, to put it like that. To go into Bielsa, you're obviously going to pick up some kind of knocks and, and uh, pulls and things like that, so... That's quite normal. And Dan James has been okay. He's very fast and not very good at anything else other than being really quick, which is good for the press. But as I say, when he's got the ball at his feet, he can look a bit like a a dog chasing a balloon sometimes. Nobody's been telling Bielsa to go or nobody's been manifesting that out loud. There is that slight worry that Leeds fans have built up over the years where we do think that everything is going to go wrong in the next couple of minutes. With Bielsa, it's not been like that, and it's been really nice to not have to think like that. And for now, people are fully behind him and fully behind the club in general. I think people are like that because although results haven't been perfect and definitely nowhere near how we left last season... After beating Manchester City, Tottenham, we drew with Chelsea, drew with Man U. To go to drawing against Newcastle, Burnley and only beating Norwich by a goal that went through Tim Krull's hands. It's because performances have been okay and definitely on an upward trajectory. So, yeah, Leeds United are not in the league position that they want to be, but we've got players coming back and... The performances have not been something that is making the Ellen Road crowd nervous as of yet. Hopefully it continues to to move up. And look at that, I've done three minutes on Leeds and not mentioned burnout. Thank you so much for that, Joe. Just above Leeds in the table then are Watford, who had a unbelievable performance this season, this weekend, sorry. In their 4-1 win over Man United, coupled with their huge win against Everton, which I think was 5-3, uh, you know, they they can be really exciting at times since Ranieri has come in. And even before that, under um, Cisco Munoz, who I thought was also uh, quite unfairly dismissed. With Watford, you sort of expect that, uh, that they get a pass because it's kind of their whole model, so you don't really question it. But they they seem to be quite an exciting team to watch. They've definitely got like a high-scoring game in them, whether it's a win or a defeat. And since Ranieri's come in, they've had two of these. This time they came out on top against Man United, who, uh, breaking news, have just dismissed Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. We'll come on to that in a little bit. 
But in Oli's last game in charge here, United looked abject. But you have to be there to capitalize. Plenty of times there's a team in complete disarray and the other team just doesn't make the most of it. Well, Watford certainly did make the most of it here. And that was after missing two penalties. So they, they could have they could have won by even more goals. Uh, they were great. Uh, going forward, they're, they're amazing. I know that United are sort of a disaster right now. But uh, we shouldn't take anything away from Watford. They, uh, they're very exciting to watch going forward. And they, they really bring a lot of excitement to the league. Especially now, now that Ranieri's in there, getting the best out of players like King and Dennis and Saar. They've got really exciting players going forward who are not, not afraid to run at players, to create chances to score goals. And uh, they'll be an exciting one to watch this season. I mean, will they have enough organization in the chaos to stay up? Uh, or will it come back to bite them? We'll have to wait and see. But at the moment, they, they, their sort of high-octane action is, is paying off. And they're sitting there in 16th. They are currently four points clear of the drop zone. And I think for them and their fans, that's a decent performance so far as a newly promoted club. Just above them are Aston Villa, who we mentioned dismissed Dean Smith recently, um, which I thought was uh, very premature and mm, not a great look, especially given what Smith had done for the club. Call me sentimental, but as a boyhood fan of the club who brought them up from the championship, who had them playing great football, kept them up, uh, had them last season finishing, I think, sort of mid-table, if I'm not mistaken, or at least very comfortable. Um, they sold Jack Grealish, their best player. Sure, they invested the money in the likes of Emby Buendia, uh, Leon Bailey and Danny Ings, but they have had injuries. Bailey's been out pretty much the whole time. Buendia's been out, I think. So I thought that that was harsh. But anyway, they've brought in Steven Gerrard from Rangers. Uh, it's difficult to know exactly what to make of Gerrard because it is risky, of course. You know, every time somebody does a great job in Scotland, that can't be necessarily translated to the Premier League. But I think one thing in his favour is to see how well he did with Rangers in Europe. Uh, not only because the quality of opposition was much higher than it was in Scotland, but also because it showed he was able to be that he was able to adapt tactically. I think in the Scottish Premiership, I don't want to be too harsh on the Scottish Premiership, but I think that he could pretty much set his team up in a very similar way every week to just be the dominant team who has all the possession and wins the games comfortably, apart from if they're playing Celtic and maybe Aberdeen. Um, That isn't the case in Europe, obviously. In Europe, they were going up against teams who were often, at very least, on par with them, if not better. Um, so they had to set up in a slightly different way and maybe play more on the counter. And and I think it's good. To sh- it shows that that he's capable of adapting, which is important in the Premier League because there'll be games they play against teams that they're better than uh, when they're supposed to be on the front foot and dominate. And there'll be games when they should be, you know, digging in and trying to get a result if they're playing the likes of Chelsea and Liverpool and so on, which is sometimes where managers who do well in Scotland when they come down, that doesn't always translate because... Well, not only the Scottish example, but in general, if you if you go from coaching a team that is expected to win every game to coaching a team that's expected to lose every game, which is what can often happen if you're managing Rangers or Celtic, because you're going from that side of things to you you don't usually walk into a top six six job from that. You usually walk into a job sort of in the lower half of the table where you have a completely opposite expectations, totally different tactical 
expectations in the game and, and what you're trying to achieve. Um, but it looks like in his first game, 2-0 win, they did well. They were solid. They kept a clean sheet. It was good to hear him in the press conference mention the f- clean sheet first before anything else, um, which shows where his priorities are. That That is where the priorities should be. They they should they need to be stable. They need to be solid, keep clean sheets and build from that. And they did that. So I think uh, he could be more on the Rogers side of things, a guy who comes down from doing well in Scotland and translate that into doing really well in the Premier League. Obviously, it, we have to wait and see. It's going to take time. Rogers was already a proven manager. Uh, he got a lot of stick because at Liverpool, he had a tough time in the end. But what he did at Liverpool, getting them to almost win the league at that point in their time was absolutely insanely good. He's, you know, one of the best managers in the league without doubt. Can Gerard emulate that? It's tough to say yet. But he he did well in his first game. Villa fans should be quite optimistic about that. But I have to say, if I was a Villa fan, especially a born and bred one from Birmingham, I'd be pretty annoyed at the dismissal of Dean Smith. Um, Next up, we have Brentford, who are in 14th on 13 points. There's a lot of teams on 13, actually. Watford, Villa and Brentford are all level on 13 points. Brentford have done quite well. They're, they're sort of attacking brand of football. is very exciting to watch, especially in the early stage of the season. They were picking up points like, you know, their opening day win over Arsenal. I think they drew 3 all with Liverpool, really holding their own. They went through a real rough patch there, but they come back from the international break, getting a draw at the weekend, which will at least, um, you know, sort of stop the bleeding and hopefully something that they can then build on again and start getting back up the table. Because uh, I do see them being sort of this year's leads. I think that's what was predicted by a lot of people going in, uh, that they were going to be, it seems like every season, one of the championship clubs that comes up really overperforms and blows everyone away and, and finishes in the top half. We had Wolves do it, Sheffield United do it, Leeds United do it, and I think Brentford are going to be that team this year. And I think Norwich and Watford will be the teams who will be trying not to go down. Um, I think Brentford won't really be in a relegation battle, I think, but we could we could see that change. Um, but I think Thomas Frank's doing a great job. They're very exciting to watch. They're a great team to watch. They seem to have real organisational understanding, which doesn't always translate when you're in these uh, crazy three-hole draws. But generally speaking, you know, they don't concede hatfuls of goals. They conceded 17 in 12. Uh, you know, their, their goals conceded is sort of mid-table. And they just probably need to be a little bit more clinical going forward and and they will be probably finishing up there. Um, As some of these teams that are starting the season really well, like Brighton and Palace, probably I think will be maybe moving in the opposite direction soon, especially Brighton. Just above Brentford then, it's Southampton. They have one point more. Um, It's so tight down there at such an early stage of the season that, you know, they're only five points clear of the relegation zone. So, but but the position-wise, it looks great. And they look to they look like they're gonna they're gonna make me look stupid for my prediction that they would be one of the three teams going down because I just thought that having sold Ings and Vestergaard that this sort of repeated selling of their best players every year was finally going to come back to haunt them. I just think their squad's threadbare. I just I do think I do worry that if in the winter they get a lot of injuries, they're gonna struggle, I think, to put up with that. But Hassan Hoodle's doing a great job. They have got some fantastic players in there. Uh, obviously Ward Prowse is key for them. Uh, Romeo 
but they um that th- they've brought in some good players too. Livramento looks good. The uh, the kid they got from Chelsea at a uh, wing back, sorry, at full back. I think they brought him in on a permanent as well. Actually, not. Uh, on loan, which was surprising because he's only 19. I think he looks quality, but if I remember correctly, they actually bought him. It's fantastic for their future. They've got a lot of bright young players there in that squad. They've also got some great uh, experienced heads in there, making it work. Um, it looks like Adam Armstrong probably isn't going to light up the Premier League and score 20 goals, but he is a, a, a good addition to their team for sure. He makes things happen. He's often involved um, in a positive way. In, in creating chances, even if he's not getting the assists, he's he's sort of involved in the build-up in that area of the pitch really well. Um, I like Armando Broja, the uh, Albanian international they have up there. He when he gets his chances, he seems like a good a good striker for them. So probably uh, things aren't as bleak on the south coast as I thought they would be coming into the season, and probably they aren't gonna be one of the three teams going down. But you never know; it's early days. That see that that squad's going to be tested. Um, Hassan Hootel's going to be tested, and if they can't bring in a few players in January uh, for nothing else to just beef up the squad in terms of bodies, then they might struggle to compete with some of the other teams down there who just have more strength in depth. Um, but we'll see if our resident Southampton fan is as optimistic about um life and St Mary's as I am. Uh, we're going to hear from Mark Walker from Saints Marching. He was kind enough to come on the show several months back when I made my uh, glaring prediction about Southampton being in real trouble. Let's hear if, by his standards, the season is going as planned. Hi, it's Mark Walker from Saints Marching, a big Southampton fan, and I'm here to uh, review what has been a fairly decent start to the season by Southampton. Um, The season started off... Uh, a bit inconsistent really um, we didn't really manage to get a league win on the board for a while but we we always had a current run of games uh, sort of in our minds as fans uh, sort of targeting them as where Saints can pick up some valuable points and uh, they're currently four games unbeaten three wins from those games as well with Norwich coming up at the weekend um, and yeah that's taken us up from uh, near the bottom three to just three points off six which is quite amazing really um, but the, the key really will be to keep that going the December and January period as that's always a crucial time in any season um, and what will also be key is keeping our best players fit we were ravaged by injuries over the Christmas period last time. Adam Armstrong has just hit a bit of form. Uh, Che Adams has been sensational for us and more recently Scotland and Armando Brogia is showing signs of being a really good loan signing even though Chelsea fans are not in that anyway. And um, another pleasing thing actually is our defensive stability as well so um, we've actually kept a number of clean sheets, which wasn't likely at all last season, really. We didn't pick up many at all. Um, and even though the wins have been narrow, it's good to see us picking up some really good points. Um, but yeah, as I say, keeping that form going, 
even against the big teams, picking up points here and there and chipping away at that 40-point total would be the first thing. And then uh, there's not not really any reason why a top half finish isn't achievable. So we move on then. Next up, we have Leicester, who are in 12th place on 15 points. For them, it's it's a season. It's a case of sort of expectations they built up over recent campaigns is the big issue for them. When you look at it in real terms, given that nowadays the the seventh place is going to the conference league, isn't it now? So you only get we. I mean, I think before we used to also get that for Europa League if somebody one of the big boys won the domestic cup, which they always do. So you did have teams like Wolves and Burnley and so on uh, qualifying for Europe by finishing seventh. It seems like now that's not happening anymore because Spurs ended up in the conference league. So I guess now then only fifth and sixth are going to the Europa. But even with that in mind, Leicester are still only four points adrift of sixth. So it's not the end of the world, considering that probably Europa League is where they'd be looking to aim for. Um, They might be looking to overachieve and sneak into the top four. But I think given that this this season's a little bit different to last season, Chelsea have emerged now as one of the best teams in the world. I think probably, I think they are the best team in the in the world right now. So when you have them, Liverpool and City, none of them are finishing out the top four. That's impossible. So then there's one space to, to fight for and you've got Spurs under Conte, Man United when they get their new manager and they're rejuvenated. Um, Arsenal are doing well under Arteta. West Ham are doing amazing under Moyes. It's tough. Um, so, you know, they shouldn't be necessarily, you know, fighting for top four. I think for them, a Europa League place would still be a great season and a good run in the cup. And I would consider that success under Rodgers. So, and that's by no means off the table. They're 12th, but on points, they're not very far off. Get a few wins together and they're well up there challenging. They struggled at the start when they were missing Johnny Evans at the back and Wilfred and Didi in the midfield. That really hurt them. But I think since those guys have come in, you know, they've picked up some more points, but it's still inconsistent. They do look a little bit haphazard at the back in terms of their organization, even with Evans there, which will be worrying for Rodgers, especially as he is a guy who is very on the ball when it comes to tactics and organization and setting his teams up right so that there'll be nothing worse than that for him. Uh, But I think that they'll turn it around. I have no, I can't see it being catastrophic for them. For sure, they'll finish in the top half and probably they'll end up in Europe. And if they don't, then, you know, it's it's a disappointment. But I still think um, Rogers has done a fantastic job and they would they would be right to do everything to keep him. But we're going to hear now from our very own Akash Roy. Uh, he, while also working for Sportscos, he also writes for Sportskeeda and Foxes of Leicester. And he was kind enough to come on the show a little while back to talk Leicester for us. Since then, things have maybe dropped off a little bit more. Let's hear from Akash to find out what he thinks about how things are going this season. Hi, everybody. This is Akash Roy, a Leicester City supporter from India. Craig asked me here, how was I feeling about the quarter of the season that has culminated thus far? First and foremost, talking about the Premier League, We have struggled a lot, currently residing in the 12th position in the league has really hurt us and right now we are just looking to grab some points to make the climb 
before Christmas. Our next opposition is the Champions League winner, Chelsea. And that is not going to be uh, an easy walkout fixture for us. It's going to take a lot of grit and determination if we are to salvage something out of that game. Because Thomas Tuchel and Brendan Rodgers are very different minds at this game. And Tuchel has done some exceptional stuff with Chelsea. And that makes them a threatening side to deal with. Particularly our counter-attacking display of football doesn't complement with a lot of teams with without proper players at Brendan Rodgers' disposal. Defensively, we have been lacking. We have been lacking a few proper players who, who could have you know turned around our season, but they are not available at this moment as we speak. Wesley Fofana, James Justin, I'm sure whenever they make their respective comebacks, the season is going to take off from there. We're going to improve upon our, our performances drastically after that. But right now, at this moment, Premier League is not a good place to be in. I mean, we are just struggling and we are struggling by a lot. There is a lower camaraderie in the team. Players are speaking out, wanting to leave, stating their aspirations in open media that they want to go to a club which plays regular UCL. So a lot of turmoil behind the dressing room is going on around the club talking about our europa league campaign i think it will be a very very hard task again nothing is easy for leicester at this moment two games are left in our group stage for the first one will be against legia warsaw the second one will be against lampoli now those two teams are particularly having very contrasting seasons you know when they qualified for the europe europa league they were at, at a at a similar pedestal but now Napoli are leading the race in Syria while Legia Warsaw is at a relegation zone so I hope Leicester somehow manages to stick around the second placed position into that group and I hope they progress but even if they don't I don't want I, I would be absolutely tormented if we were to succumb to the conference league because that's a place where I don't want to be in as a supporter, it would be heartbreaking to see Leicester drop down to a level below. And in the next Premier League fixture, I think we have got Aston Villa, Watford and Southampton in, in some, some order or the other. And we have to do and manage those those matches without Telemans. And that's a huge blow because Telemans has been putting up numbers, or orchestrating plays, reading the lines. And it would be a vital loss for Brendan Rodgers. So how am I feeling right now? Uh, underconfident definitely uh, as I said in the podcast earlier that anything anything above 10 will be a success considerable success this season with with a little bit deep run into the cup uh, and and trying anything to get to the reach the knockout stages or beyond that in the Europa League I have confidence in my team don't get me wrong but my team does manage to surprise everyone including us thanks so much Akash and so we uh, top off the bottom half of the table now with Everton in 11th at the time of recording um, this could depend on later today uh, when they play, they might rise in the table. They started really, really well under Rafa Benitez, but the wheels have started to fall off a little bit. And you always knew that the second thing started to go a little bit wrong, he was going to be in big trouble. Given his, you know, very, very famous association with Liverpool and everything that he did for them, it was always going to be tough for a big portion of that fan base to accept him. 
He really needed to hit the ground running, which he did. And considering he spent absolutely no money and brought in the likes of uh, Damari Gray and Andros Townsend, who, let's be fair, until that point would have been just considered Premier League rejects that I would say no one in the top half of the table would be looking at, if at all, in the Premier League. Brings them in, shows that they still have great talent, great potential that he can harness. And they were both fantastic in the, in the sort of first portion of, of this season. Things have dropped off quite majorly. Uh, they're winless in five. They've lost three of their last five. Uh, so that's two points from 15. It's not good. They need a reaction soon. They need to start putting some wins together soon because Everton fans will be expecting to challenge for those European places. Again, not necessarily get them, especially given the lack of money spent, that, but they will be expecting to be in the top half and to be challenging for sort of sixth and seventh. And if they're not even challenging, then that will be difficult. And I think that Benitez has less time than other managers to get this right. So that's the bottom half of the Premier League table done. We're going to take a very short break and then we'll come back and find out what's happening in the top half of the Premier League table. And we're back. So currently in ninth, we have Crystal Palace. Talk about an overachievement. I mean, they have... Been battling relegation almost every year. Roy Hodgson's kept them up relatively comfortably in the end, but they have been down there and they haven't really been doing anything of note. And especially in terms of the style of play, it hasn't been very exciting. Um, But all credit to Hodgson just for sort of maintaining them and giving them this platform to be able to bring in a young, exciting coach like Patrick Vieira. Uh, At the beginning, it was saw as, uh, like Gerrard, a big risk. Um, Are they going to have another De Boer situation? Or are they going to do something cool? And it looks like they're doing something really cool. Uh, I rate Vieira a lot. Um, I think he's got a really good sort of coaching foundation behind him now. He started off, I think, at City when his career ended. Went to the US. I think maybe he did some stuff at Arsenal. His stint at Nice. He's sort of been in the game for longer than it seems in terms of earning his badges. Not, uh, Not only literally, but figuratively getting that experience, getting that knowledge that he needs to go on and lead a team. And it seems like it's translating very well. They've got a lot of great, young, exciting players there like Eze, Gallagher in on loan from uh, from Chelsea. And I think that they will be a mid-table side. I can't see them being in any relegation trouble. I think they'll drop off from where they are, though. I think they'll finish sort of like 12th or 13th, which for them would be progress, I think. Because not only as well to finish a couple of places higher than they would under Roger, sorry under Hodgson, but also just to excite the fans with some more progressive football. They're scoring goals. But I think they're they're, they're going to be one to watch this year. And I think that a lot of young players will be developed well under Vieira too. That leads us to eighth position where we have Brighton. Brighton started very, very well. Um, but they've dropped off quite well now. They're, they're, they're winless in five. They've lost two in their last five, picking up three points from possible 15. They're sort of sinking like a stone there. I don't, again, I don't see any real relegation drama for them, which would again be progress because although they've finished somewhat comfortably, they have always been in the relegation conversation pretty much since the whole time they've been up and even under Potter where they've played good football, but they haven't scored enough goals. Uh, you know, they're sort of the, the the XG nightmare team, aren't they? That they they play very well, they create a lot of chances, never put them away and end up finishing 17th and just about staying in the league. I don't think that'll be happening this season. I think they'll finish a few places above that. I think that they'll be a little bit more consolidated and I think that's healthy progress for Potter and the team. I don't think that they 
can and they never could sustain the start to the season that they've had. I mean, they still do have this issue with scoring goals. They've scored 12 in 12, so that's a goal a game. I mean, Spurs are the only team in the top half who've scored less. Several teams in the bottom half have scored more. I mean, rock bottom Newcastle have scored more. From from what I can tell here, looking at the table, the only teams in the whole league who've scored less than them are Tottenham, Southampton, Leeds, and Norwich. And that's just not good enough. Surprisingly enough, they've been extremely tight at the back. They've only conceded 14 in 12, and that's why they're up there where they are, because they've won a lot of games 1-0, 2-0. But they, they really do need to be more clinical. They need to score more than a goal a game, because they're probably not going to be able to keep the amount of clean sheets that they have been keeping or keeping the score down as well as they have throughout the whole season. So probably they're going to drop off a little bit, but they should be really, really proud of what they've done so far in the season. And if they can just be a little bit more clinical, then they can definitely improve on what they've done in the last several years. Which leads us to Man United, who are with Barcelona, probably the most fascinating dumpster fire in world football. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has just been sacked. Um, I heard, I saw the news break on Twitter with, uh, of course, the the, the go to guy for Maurizio Romano was uh, was tweeting about it, and that's when you knew the writing was definitely on the wall. Today it was made official, I think, or at least it's in all the papers today. I mean, it had to be done eventually. I think it, it, the fun couldn't go on forever <laughs> for the rest of the world. Man United, Man City, and uh, Liverpool fans in particular. But but it was fun while it lasted. Who knows who they're going to bring in now? There's talk of Zidane and Rodgers and Ten Hag and all the usual suspects who get linked to every job ever. But I think Conte would have been the right man for them probably. Now he's gone. I don't know who they'll bring in because they really do need someone to whip that squad into shape and and get a reaction from them. Um, I think that the issue they had under Mourinho was that everyone hated him and everyone hated each other and no one respected him. And then they brought in Oli, and I think props to Oli. He definitely has, I think he should leave with his head held high because apart from this start to the season, everything else has done has been great. To return a sort of positive vibe to the club, not only in the dressing room, but in the stands. And also, in terms of results, they have improved. They had, they're a better squad. And he's managed, he's sort of oversaw a, a sort of progression in terms of the playing staff, they have a better quality squad now under him, and they've achieved more. They've they've finished higher in the table. They've got to finals. Unfortunately, they lost a bunch of them, but they got there, and they've. I think they have definitely moved forward. But now the problem is they need to sort of get in now, Mourinho, but when he was when he left Porto. So that's Conte pretty much I guess. You need like a guy to come in who is gonna, you know, really beat the the living stuff out of them and uh and really get them going, but at the same time demand their respect so they won't just stop playing for him. And especially when you got personalities like Ronaldo in the dressing room, which it's only my opinion, but I just think he's toxic and I, I would never want him to play for any club that I was associated with. You need someone to go in there who's going to be above him. So I think if now Conte's gone, the only option is Zidane. Uh, when Zidane's in there, that's a guy that Ronaldo can't pretend that he's bigger than. Assuming that they're going to keep building the team around him, I mean, the best option would just be to not play him and to just cut your losses and put him on the bench. 
Um, you've made the most out of the merch deals and everything now, I'm sure. Um, there's no elite team in world football right now that wants to really win Champions Leagues like Liverpool, Chelsea, Man City, uh, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich that would have Cristiano Ronaldo in, in that team. They wouldn't. Even when he went to Juventus, that was because he was no longer able to play in that kind of team. And he went to Juventus to to bring them the Champions League when at the time you could see that you're just going to move further away from the Champions League by bringing him in. So it's one of those things. He looks like the firefighter. He looks like the savior, but actually he's the, the cause of most of their problems. And uh, they do well to just put him on the bench, uh, play Greenwood, play Sancho, play Rashford, play Fernandez, play their all of their good players who were doing great things before he arrived and who now have dropped off majorly since his arrival. I mean, you can't put all of that at his feet. It's not his fault that people decide to buy to 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 buy him and to play him. It's not his fault. It's not like a malicious thing. Uh, he's not like a bad person, but it's just it was a mistake. Of course, the situation isn't as dire as it looks. They're six points outside the top four, and West Ham are the team in fourth. And you'd think that they can gain six points on West Ham across the whole season if they can turn things around quickly. Um, they shouldn't be they should really have got rid of Solskjaer before the international break like all the other teams did who acted quickly uh, and brought in the new man now it's a little bit more tricky but you don't want to rely on Michael Carrick and Darren Fletcher uh, holding the fort for too long Um, I think Zidane's the clear choice get him in or get someone in ASAP and find out what you're going to do but that's Man United they you know they're an enigma (laughs) we'll we'll watch and see what happens next with them um, that brings us on to Wolves, who are, they look back to their best. And not only that, they look better than their best because they look back to being as consistent as they were under Nuno in the glory days and more exciting and interesting to watch at the same time. Their stats don't actually bear that out, which is what's so interesting. They've only scored 12 goals too, like Brighton. Uh, and they've only conceded 12 as well. Very similar to Brighton, actually. But But like Brighton, they're very on the front foot and great to watch. So it's really strange that they somehow managed to not score that many goals. Jimenez is slowly but surely coming back to his best. It's tough to come back from such a horrific injury that he had. Wang looks like a great addition. Pedence is always exciting when he gets the chance. Um, they've got a lot of bright lights going forward. They look well organized. They they had a tough start to the season where they I think they lost their first three games on the bounce and scored no goals. Um, but since then, that's that's changed. They're definitely on the up. Whether they'll be challenging for European football in the end, to wait and see, because it's so competitive up there. But I would think that they are over the moon with their start so far under Bruno Large. Uh, he looks to be doing a fantastic job. But let's find out what our resident Wolves fan has to say about that. We're going to hear from Richard Hobbs from Wolves Fancast, who again was one of our earliest guests. Let's find out what he thinks about how Large and Wolves are getting on so far. Hi, this is Rich from Wolves Fancast, looking at the start of the season Wolves have had. I think overall, we're about where we expected to be. Um, We started off the season losing three games in a row against good opposition, um, but we're playing really attractive football and a different brand to what we'd seen um, under Nuno, our previous manager. Um, We've slightly changed tact a little bit to going a little bit more reserved I guess for want of a better term and sort of playing a little bit more conservative and got a lot good amount of points on the board to get into a really good respectable position um 
So, looking at it, I think we've won the games we should be winning and have lost games predominantly that we'd expected to. We've had a couple of blips against the likes of Brentford and Crystal Palace as well, but you were going to get those. Um, currently eighth from the league, really happy with that. I mean, that middle section of the division um, between around 6th to 12th is still very congested at the moment at this point of the season, but it's good that we're still in that middle of the pack. We do have a bit of a tough run in December as well. I think we've got the likes of Liverpool and Man City to play, so we've got to make sure we're still capitalising against the teams who are most likely going to finish in the bottom half of the table. Um, I think that's a really good sort of roadmap for us to securing a higher finish as possible and being realistic on those on those aims. Um, as I mentioned, we've had a slightly different style of football. Um, we seem to move the ball more quicker and efficient when we're playing well. Having Jimenez back has been massive, although the goals haven't quite been there. He's got two in ten. He is still a huge threat and he is still a key player for Wolves and really links up the attack. Um, Huang Hee Chan, who has come in alongside him, has really hit the ground running. And although Jimenez hasn't quite got off the mark, he's actually opening up space for Huang to finish off the chances in the six-yard box, which is massively benefiting the team with the likes of Traore being um, enigmatic in front of goal, to say the least. Um in terms of other players who are doing well, I think you've got to do, have a special shout out for Max Kilman, who is a bit of an underrated unsung hero who um, has a very interesting football background, but is quite an unassuming player and has quietly over the last, um, well, this calendar year really stepped up, never really put in bad performances, and he's just made um, that. Um, central defence position his own this season. He's been dominant. He's good on the ball. Um, he's doing the simple stuff really well and not looking at all out of place and seems to be a real key player for Bruno. Um, I think he's been a real defensive rock for us this season. In terms of what could be better, um, despite Ruben Neves, again, being someone who's had a really strong start to the season, you look at his stats in terms of how he's playing offensively and defensively. He's up there with the best in the league. However, we only have three central midfielders in the club. They all do sort of a similar position in terms of um, a bit of a water bottle carrier in the middle of the park, which is a bit frustrating. And also, you know, just on a bodies-wise, if one of those gets injured or suspended, we are down to our bare bones. So... That's a bit of a struggle and we don't quite have the right partner for Ruben Neves. I love João Martino. He's been one of the best players to ever play for the club. Um, and that's a fact. However, we've never really seen Martino and Neves both put a run of form in at the same time together. Um, similar with Dendonka. He, I, I like him. I rate him. But if the answer's then uh, Donk, then you sometimes have to ask what's the question um, a lot of the time. So we still need to improve in central midfield um, and hopefully getting another kind of defender in at the back as well, just to solidify things um, on the left-hand side. Um, but overall, I think we're really happy with how um, the season's going so far. Of course, we've got um, some ways to go and I think we definitely need reinforcements, but... Um, I do think if we were able to get in another cent uh, central defender to play on the left alongside kind of Cody 
or Kilman slash Bolly. Get another midfielder as well who'd be a perfect foil for Neves. Um, with Pedro Neto looking to return in the new year and also Johnny looking to come back at some point in the first quarter of 2020. We've got a really strong team who could, um, you know, definitely sort of push the top half of this season, which um, I think I think is a really sort of solid goal for Wolves and potentially in between managers at the start of pre-season. I wasn't necessarily expecting that. I'd have settled for 12th, but a different brand of football. But at the moment, we're playing a different brand of football and in the top half of the table. So there's not much more I don't think you can ask for as a, uh, as a Wolves fan. And that moves us on to Arsenal, who are just above them in fifth. They suffered a humbling 4-0 defeat to Liverpool at the weekend. But I hope that their fans... Um, who are not known on social media, on Twitter and YouTube, as the most, as the calmest. <laughs> I hope they can um, see this within context, that Arsenal um, can't be expected to compete with Liverpool. The gulf between Liverpool, Man City and Chelsea and the rest of the league is just astronomical. Now, you might say, well, look at West Ham, they did it. That's true. And anything could happen. Man City, I think they... Um, they drew the other week with, uh, I can't remember who it was, but it was someone down there. They, uh, they, they drew before the international break um, and they could lose. You know, Man City could lose to Norwich. Like, it would be crazy, but it could happen. Anything can happen in this league. So, yeah, of course, it's not impossible that Arsenal could get a result but nine to- or, or West Ham, but nine times out of ten, just because West Ham did really well against Liverpool doesn't mean they would every time. Nine times out of ten, Liverpool would dominate them. Liverpool... Man City and Chelsea are better than everyone else by quite a distance. So if you go into that game, you hope you can get something out of it. You hope you can have that day where the players just have you know play their best game and they they pull something off. But if they don't, you should just accept it as that's normal. It is normal to lose four nil to Liverpool. It actually is normal. They capitulated a little bit in that game, but I hope that they just ignore that and get back to doing what they've been doing because I'm not an Arsenal fan in any way, but I I like to see sort of teams and especially coaches who are, you know, really down in the dumps, derided, you know, they're, they're out by, you know, they're getting sacked in the morning. I love it when you see them turn it around and, and go on a great run and do something and do something great. And that's what Arteta's done. Um, I liked seeing his fiery exchange with Klopp on the sidelines. That's what you like to see from your coach. So if I was an Arsenal fan, I'd be uh, more than happy with the season especially given the uh, torrid start they had, losing their first three games. But at the time when they lost those games, I did think it wasn't a good barometer for their campaign. Again, when you lose to Chelsea, you lose to Man City. That's the European champions and the Premier League champions. And they lost their first game against Brentford, who had just come up with a bunch of hype around them, playing in their home stadium where they'd never seen Premier League football. Amazing atmosphere. That's a banana skin for anyone. You know, Man City lost their first game of the season to Spurs and then look how terrible they ended up being after that. Anything can happen in the first game of the season, especially against a newly promoted team with a lot of sort of vibe, which is what Brentford have. So I did think then at the time that there was no need to panic from those three games. You would have expected, you know, maximum three points. There was no way they were getting anything from Chelsea or City. And in the end, they lost to Brentford. Okay, no big deal. Since then, they've been sublime. And now they've lost again. And who's it to? Liverpool. So other than Brentford, the only times they've lost have been against the three best teams in the league and possibly the world. But I hope that the reaction is is measured because I think that if they keep going the way they're going with the young players they've brought in who seem to be hitting the ground running, Tomiyasu, White, Ramsdale, 
Sambila Conga, they're all playing well. Arteta's got them playing well. They've got a great sort of shape now. They they look good. They got overwhelmed against Liverpool because their press is just so irresistible and very few teams can resist it. And when, they, when they're on form like that, they're so tough to play against. But aside from that, they look good. I'd give them every chance of doing well this season. Um, same thing for West Ham. Three points ahead of them in fourth. I mean, they've been overachieving to say the least. But with a team that Moyes has built, you know, that the expectations have gone up and I think that they can meet them. Dreaming of the top four is a good is a good thing to do. They should dream of that. But they should remember if they don't quite achieve it, finishing the Europa League would still be an outrageous season for them. Really, really good. To have back-to-back Europa League would be incredible. And I think it's something they can achieve. They've got a great squad. Moyes is back to his best, which really pleases me because I do have a real soft spot for managers who are down on their look, and especially one like Moyes, that the dynasty that he built at Everton was was outstanding. That's why he got the Man United job, deservedly so. And then, you know, if you walk into Man United since Fergie left as a player or a manager, it's just a curse. It, it's It's a burial ground. I'm struggling to think of anyone other than Fernandez. I don't know who else who went there who's done well. Not players they brought through like Greenwood and Rashford and Lingard, but someone who's gone there and it hasn't ruined their career. Um, other than Fernandes. I mean, the, the list is endless of players like Di Maria, uh, Falcao, who go in there and just look up Smalling. The, the amount of players that, that go there have an awful time, leave, and then they're great again. Like, all, almost immediately. Uh, and in the case of all those players I mentioned, that is the case. Especially Di Maria is a really striking example. And uh, it's the same thing for managers. Um, I think the only difference is the managers don't bounce back. So Van, so Moyes goes in there, super highly rated, did an incredible job. Career over, seemingly, until now. Um, Van Gaal, the same. Mourinho, um, he was sort of starting to show signs that he was dropping off. But no one could really argue that he was a, a busted flush until he went to United. And then that was the death knell. That was the final nail in the coffin. And then since then, it's been Spurs. Now the wheels are already falling off at Roma after, what what are we on, like 10 games? It's already over. Um, and his career will continue to slide. And you can't imagine it coming back unless he does what Moyes has done, which is to somehow miraculously turn it all around. I mean, his career fell off a cliff. He went to Sociedad. Uh, Sunderland, first stint at West Ham, all of them awful. And now second stint at West Ham, somehow, I don't know what's happened, but it's magic. And he's doing a fantastic job with more or less the squad of players that he had there before. Uh, Brought in a couple of other players like Ben Rama, Bowen, who shrewd signings, and even the existing players they already had there, he's getting the best out of. They look very good across the pitch. They look solid at the back, great defensive record. Scoring a bunch of goals as well. They're right up there. And I think they've, no one's conceded more than... Sorry, no one's scored more than them apart from Chelsea and Liverpool. So not only are they fantastic going forward, but they're also great at the back. So much love for Moyes. So much love for what they're doing. It's a fairy tale. Obviously, we all dream of them winning the league again like Leicester. But they're already six points adrift at Chelsea. At this point, it looks difficult to imagine that anyone will be catching Chelsea, even Liverpool and Man City. And West Ham, it might just be a bridge too far for them. But if they can fight till the end for top four, I think that would be an unbelievable performance for them. And maybe they could be sort of the new Leicester who are up there consistently sort of disrupting 
the big boys. But that leads us on to our Premier League champions, Manchester City in third. It's business as usual for them. Uh, you know, they're six points adrift to Chelsea with a game in hand, assuming they win that, which you assume they do every game in hand they have. You assume they win every game they're in, no matter who they're playing. Assuming they win that, they'll be three points behind in second place. So it's business as usual for them. They'll be fighting on all fronts as always. I mean, what more can you say about them? You could maybe argue they could do with a real out-and-out striker like Harry Kane, who they tried to sign in the summer. Even without him, they score a bunch of goals. They're extremely miserly at the back. Six goals conceded in 11. Uh, Apart from Chelsea, they've got the best defensive record in the league, and, and that's no surprise there. They're really good at everything they do. In a way, it's it's strange because you'd expect to talk more about them than you would Newcastle. But there's actually, there's, there's nothing to say. They've got sort of 10 absolute worldy centre-attacking midfielders who they just play in every position, up front, right wing, left wing, and in midfield. All of them are just sort of, it's like a, they just have this sort of like six players. And I guess you have maybe like Fernandinho or Rodri sometimes who won't be in one of the attacking positions. They'll be sort of there in the pivot. Everyone else, even De Bruyne, he plays up front sometimes. It's just crazy. We're off the left, off the right. Foden, Gundogan, Bernardo Silva, Sterling, just Mares. You worry that Ferran Torres, who I know he's injured, but you worry that you're missing someone out. But yeah, they're... They've got so much strength in depth in every position on the pitch. I mean, look at their centre-backs. It's just frightening. And uh, Chelsea are the only team, I think, in the world with a better squad. So they're up there. They will be up there. If they win the league, it'll be no surprise. If they win the Champions League, it'll be no surprise, even though it'll be fantastic for them to finally do it. But on paper, you'd have to have them down as in the two or three favourites. Let's find out what... Thomas Duck thinks about the situation. Thomas writes for Bitter and Blue. He came on our show a little while ago to talk Man City. Let's see if he is as optimistic as I am about the start to the season so far. Man City's inability to pry Harry Kane away from Tottenham Hotspur during the summer transfer window, coupled with the loss to Leicester in the Community Shield and a defeat to Spurs in the Premier League opener, had many fans concerned that the lack of a true striker would hurt City when facing top-level competition. And while City have had a troublesome home draw with Southampton and a more understandable road defeat to PSG in the Champions League, they've proved to be a solid contender in both the league and in Europe. Pep Guardiola has dealt with key injuries throughout the fall. Kevin De Bruyne has been in and out of the lineup. Phil Foden had a lengthy layoff after summer internationals, and John Stones has featured in just one game for the Blues this year. But City have seen solid contributions from Rodri, uh, Jao Cancelo, who might be the best left back in England at the moment, and Bernardo Silva, who many thought might exit in the summer window. The City group have pulled off some pretty impressive feats of strength so far, not the least of which is the fact that Pep's lads have traveled to Stamford Bridge, Anfield, and Old Trafford already, and they've come away with seven of a possible nine points. City also sit atop Group A in the Champions League, and it's no secret that this is the trophy most coveted by the ownership group. With a home fixture with PSG and a road trip to RB Leipzig remaining, the citizens look to be on their way to the knockout rounds. Now, one bad day can ruin your year once you get to this stage, but Pep won't be coaching in four competitions this year now that the Blues have bowed out of the Carabao Cup after winning it four years running. City sit three points behind leader uh, Chelsea in the table, heading toward a busy holiday season that in recent years has seen Man City thrive where other clubs stumble. It's a busy schedule ahead, and City appear built for it. 
We may yet see a striker signed in January, although I doubt it would be a huge name, and I wonder how not having to compete in the League Cup after being bounced by West Ham will factor into the UCL knockouts. But it looks to be all systems go for City heading into the holiday season and beyond into 2022. Thank you very much, Thomas. And that leads us to Liverpool in second. Could be third by the time you're hearing this. And of course, Liverpool are up there. They're only four points behind Thomas Tuchel's Chelsea. Uh, West Ham finally ended their unbeaten run uh, the other week. But they're just, they're irresistible. Like the other big two. Again, what is there to say? World-class players across the pitch, possibly slightly less strength in depth than the other two. But they're getting there. They haven't quite got to that ridiculous level where they have two absolute worldies in every position, but they, they're definitely improving with every year. I remember when it used to be sort of a fantastic starting eleven at the best in the league, which I think it still is probably their, their first eleven is probably still the best in the league. But the problem was always that after that, you really sort of got down to some sort of dregs. And now it's uh, it's not like that at all now. that the, the, They still have some areas where it's a bit like that, where the guy coming in, you think, oh, okay, it's all right. But but I think gone are the days of need. For example, up front, they don't always need to just only Origi is their only option now. I mean, now Firmino can't get in the team. So if someone, if one of the front three is missing, because the front three at this point, last season and this season, does seem to be sort of becoming Jota, Mane and Salah. Looks like Jota is sort of transitioning into Firmino's place. But Firmino's always there to come in if needed. I think he has some injury troubles too. But if one of them's injured, there's always someone there to come in. And if, God forbid, a couple are injured, you do have Origi, which I know I sort of slighted him a little bit earlier. But he's a he's a dependable, good striker. And he scores goals when he's needed. When he is, with the rare occasions that he does have to come in, he does well. And now in the midfield, when they lose, you know, one of their players... The amount of fantastic midfielders they've got. Their centre-back issue has now been sorted. Now they've brought in Ibrahim Okanate from uh, Leipzig. And uh, it's all good. It's looking all good. I guess the only thing you could say is that it's not quite as outstanding as Chelsea and Man City in terms of a squad. But it's definitely up there. And, yep, Liverpool will be competing on all fronts, just like City, as will the current leaders, Chelsea. They will, of course, be competing on all fronts. They have drawn two and lost one of their 12 games, won the other nine. Only four goals conceded. They are irresistible going forward, impenetrable at the back. And again, they have seemingly two players in every position who are good enough to play for any other team in the league at start. So it's, yeah, it's tough to see how you could beat them. And in any other league where you didn't have squads like Man City's and Liverpool's and managers like Klopp and Guardiola. Any other league, it would be tough to imagine uh, it even being competitive. But Tuchel will have to stay on top of his players because it is competitive. Even with a squad like that and even with a manager like that, it is competitive. So the Premier League shaping up to be a fascinating three-horse race and then probably a very equally interesting five or six-team race for the top four. Uh, with the ones missing out finishing in the Europa League and Europa Conference League. And then we should have a fairly competitive sort of relegation battle. And it's tough to know so early who's going to end up where. But it it, it it looks set to be as fascinating as ever as a Premier League season. But before we come on to matters abroad and lower down the pyramid, we're going to take one very quick break. 
And we're back. So we've been through the Premier League now. We're going to cover some stuff from outside the Premier League a little bit. Just a couple of quick things. First of all, we're going to talk a little bit about Sunderland, who are in League One. This is because I want to get the thoughts of Sam Blakey from the Roker Report podcast. He came on our show a little while ago to talk about Sunderland. Uh, Sunderland being, I think, the only team that we've covered on the show from outside of a top major league. But of course, a huge club. They've been down there in League One for a little while now. They're always flirting around the playoffs. They're always getting in the playoffs and falling at the last hurdle, or at least, at the very least, finishing right up there. And this season looks no different, which I'd be interested to know from Sam whether or not that's frustrating, because again, they're in sixth, two points clear of Sheffield Wednesday. Some of the, the size of some of these clubs you have down there in League One now, it really is just uh, just crazy. But they're only uh, three points off of Rotherham in second. Uh, for the automatic, and they have a game in hand. Now, I'm sure Sam will be desperate for them to just get that automatic place, because this playoff drama, just the stress is enough to put you in an early grave, and I just don't know how much longer those Sunderland fans are going to be able to watch as Sunderland fall at the last hurdle. But uh, it seems like they're going well, though. Hopefully, for Sam's case, they can get over the line and finish in the top two. But if not, if they finish in the playoffs, you'd you'd always have to fancy them, because they're a big club. Obviously, I haven't been following them closely this year, but in the in the recent years, they've they've had some some players who've done who've done some great things. Aidan McGeady is still seemingly at the peak of his powers. I mean, I think in our conversation we spoke about the number of assists and goals he gets at his age down there. Um, it's it's fantastic. I I really like Lyndon Gooch, the American kid they've got over there. It seems like he's sort of become like a bit of a local legend. He's kind of like bedded in there. At least it looks like on Twitter. He gets a lot of love and seems to sort of use a lot of the like local vernacular and stuff, which is really cool. You love to see. But yeah, they've got Lee Johnson in charge, another bright young coach, uh, and he spent four years at Bristol City before. So he's been in the in the uh, championship too, and he's dropped down obviously because Sunderland are a huge club, arguably bigger than the clubs in the championship, let alone the League One. Um, so yeah, you'd hope that they'll they'll keep playing well and get in the top two. But let's actually hear from an expert now, because I would be lying if I said that I'm watching all of Sunderland's games every week. I mean, for a start, it would be illegal uh, for me to do that. (laughs) I don't even know how I would go about watching all of their games. Uh, Well, aside from uh, driving to uh, Sunderland every weekend, that would be a toughie. But let's find out what Sam, Sam Blakey from Roker Report, thinks about Sunderland's season so far. Hello, Sam Blakey here from the Roker Report podcast to discuss all things Sunderland and give a quick sort of review of how the season's gone so far for Sunderland in their fourth, yes, fourth season in League One. Um, what, we're now fifth, we're around 15 games in or so at the season. Obviously, other teams have games in hand, etc. with international call-ups. It's around 15 games, which is... When you're coming up towards the Christmas period, you start to get a, a good idea of what teams are where in the league and who's the ones to look out for. And the contrast from the start of the season to where we are now and where we've been in recent weeks for Sunderland is, is night and day. We started the season absolutely flying, really. Um, we were top of the league, for, which I didn't know at the time, which is a terrifying statistic. We were top of the league at the start of the season which is actually the first time we've been top of League One since coming down to it, um, which I'd rather not 
dwell on that point any longer. We are no longer top of the league. We are now seventh, I believe. Obviously, you've got to take into account the games in hand, but um, if that doesn't tell you the contrast between the start and now, I don't know what will. Um, we won at the start of the season. We won four. No, sorry, we won five home league games in a row in front of a, an average crowd of around thirty plus thousand fans, which after COVID was just a breath of fresh air for everyone involved at the club. Really, we were playing really well. We were promoting youngsters. We've got a um, a few young players, in particular a lad in midfield called Dan Neil, 19-year-old, just local lad, loves the club. Really exciting central midfielder who picks up the ball, drives it, players not afraid to um, take a risk and the fans love players like that. We've given him a contract, so... Hopefully, more young players are going to stay at the club rather than move on. Um, we got to, to, we're in the quarter final of the Carabao Cup against Arsenal in about a month's time. We beat Championship opposition QPR recently on penalties, and it was sort of, I think I want to say it was after that QPR game to get to the quarter final of the Carabao Cup where things started to go wrong slowly. But I mean. You get to that point of the season, we, granted we do have a few injuries, but it just feels like something's changed with the way we're playing, the confidence, Lee Johnson, the managers come under scrutiny. And I guess rightly so when I tell you that in the last few weeks, we've lost 4-0 at Portsmouth, 5-1 at Rotherham, 3-0 at Sheffield Wednesday, and recently we've lost 1-0 at home to Mansfield in the FA Cup, who were, of course, a League Two side, who were in pretty poor form themselves in the division below us. So, I guess criticism's always going to be pointed at the manager. I still am I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of Lee Johnson. I, 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 don't, I don't agree with some things he's maybe said or done in recent weeks, but I think... We've got a bit of a culture at Sunderland of when you go on a run, that's bad. And it's been terrible. I mean, no matter what league you're in, you shouldn't be losing 4-0, 5-1 and 3-0 in basically consecutive weeks, should you? So I'm not saying anyone's overreacting, but I think we need to get out of this culture at Sunderland of, oh, a second new manager, get a bounce. Because we've seen all too often in this league, a new manager comes in, doesn't doesn't like certain players, doesn't like certain systems, you're almost right off your season. So I think we need to stick with Lee Johnson a bit, but we've got a game on Saturday now at home against Ipswich, who are, I think, one of the most informed sides of the league. They, they signed a load of players before the season and didn't start off great, but it looks like they're maybe starting to click. So it's going to be a tough game on Saturday. If It's one of those where if you win, it's like, oh, well, it was just a bad run, but... If we see one nil down or don't play very well and you're at home, I think big, big questions will start to be asked of Lee Johnson. So at the time of recording, um, we're in a bad run, obviously. Like I said, Ipswich is the next game. It's a coin flip what happens on Saturday and then what happens after because of that. But hopefully, like I say, it's just a, it was a blip and we can tighten up the defence and wouldn't get back to where we were at the start of the season because it's the same group of players that had us top of the league. So there's there's no reason why we can't just get the confidence back in them and hopefully it's a fourth, yes, fourth time of asking we get out of this league. So fingers crossed. Um, 
we get out of this league. Thankfully, there's no documentary this season, unless they're doing it on the sly, which wouldn't surprise me. But that's all things Sunderland, really, up until now, 15 games into the start of the season. And now I'd like to touch on a little bit about, I guess, my teams. I've mentioned a little bit here and there during the podcast, my sort of complicated fandom. Um, On the very lowest level, I keep an eye on many teams. Um, I have a soft spot for Wolves because my dad's a Wolves fan. My family are Wolves fans. Uh, I have quite a soft spot for Leeds because I lived up there when I was at uni. I have a big soft spot for several of the teams in Spain from the different cities that I lived in. Most of them are in the Segunda uh, or even lower in the case of UD Melilla. Um, But I like to keep an eye on Malaga, for example, um, Real Zaragoza. Um, Real Mallorca, who are in the um, La Liga now, um, they're sort of yo-yoing around. But at the time, they were um, they were very much like in the uh, in the Segunda. So I keep an eye on all these teams' results and sort of how they're doing, and and try and look at their highlights and sort of root for them. And then in the level above that, I guess you'd have my two teams that I would say I like support. And one of them is Man City. Complicated, long story on that, but um, I don't really get into it too much in the in the podcast for obvious reasons. And the other one would be Warsaw, which is my hometown club. I'm from Warsaw in the black country. We're in League Two at the moment in the fourth tier. Uh, it's actually through Warsaw that I um, I started out as a Wolves fan as a little kid because my dad was a Wolves fan. You only you do what you know. And then I was playing youth team football for Warsaw. And so I, support, I started supporting them quite heavily when I was sort of, you know, about sort of six until about nine. And then... That was actually when I got introduced to Man City because Man City came to play against us at the time. Both of our, both of my favorite teams uh, were in Division Two, which would be called League One now. Uh, so in the third tier, and they both got promoted that same season. Actually, so I went from being a Warsaw fan to a sort of Warsaw and Man City fan, and then I followed them both in the Championship. And uh, yeah, I just I sort of started getting more and more attracted to Man City while still keeping a very keen interest in my hometown club. Um, And then over the years, I'd say probably I leaned more towards Man City as Man City sort of eventually went up from the championship, were a very mediocre, lower Premier League side uh, or the very best mid-table side for all of my adolescence. Till I went to university, which is quite funny to look back now, because if anybody asks who I support, I sort of, I'm sort of ashamed to say that I support Man City. Any football fan listening to this knows where that conversation goes from there. But it's, it's not as straightforward as it looks that I'm just a you know glory hunter who in my mid twenties I guess decided oh Man City win everything I'll start following them. It's actually quite not like that actually. As I said, I actually discovered the club when they were in the third tier. For most of my um, following of them, they were just absolute nothing. Nobody cared at all. And back in those days, it was fun because if I mentioned to someone who I supported, they'd be like, oh, that's cool. That's weird. That's that's interesting. It's kind of like being from Carlisle and you support Reading. People are like, oh, it's a bit weird that you don't support Carlisle. You're not from Reading. That's weird. But whatever. I'm not mad at you. Whatever. Fine. Uh, whereas nowadays, it's not quite like that obviously because of the success. So I have a sort of complicated relationship with Man City because of that. Like part of me wishes there wasn't any success or part of me wishes that we would, you know, uh, go bankrupt and go down to the fourth division so I could like proudly support them again. Um, But it is what it is. So I still um, obviously keep a close eye on Man City. I still watch as many of their games as I can. I go to as many games as I can at the Etihad. Granted, I can't go to many. 
But of course, I, I think um, when I was sort of in my sort of late teens, early 20s, I went quite a lot. So I'd probably go to about sort of 10 games a year. But then when I moved to Spain, obviously, and years and years abroad, and I haven't really gone as much. And I haven't been myself in a couple of years. I saw us beat Bournemouth 2-0 there about two years ago. But yeah, I haven't been this season. But I obviously watch all their games, keep an eye on them, love them, you know. And I'd say at this point, my love for them is more, um, is not really connected to the club. I'd say my love for the club is dying because the club isn't really what it was now. It's not um, what it used to be. Now it's it's Nike or McDonald's to me, basically. It's just a brand. <laughs> but uh, but the, But what I love is the team. I love the players. I love the manager. And when I sort of root for them, I root for the players, if that makes sense. I suppose that's a pretty obvious thing. But um, when I uh, watch Man City and I hope that they win, you know, the Champions League final, for example, it's because I want like De Bruyne, Bernardo Silva, all my favorite players and Aguero, especially. That was what was so haunting about that defeat. I want those guys to have that success because I'd be so happy for them. They deserve it. But I don't necessarily feel that same affinity in terms of club like I used to when I was 13 14 and we were like sort of scrapping to get promoted from the championship and to stay in the Premier League then it was more sort of uh it was more about the club than just the players but that brings me to Warsaw brings me back to Warsaw where I I am starting to re-establish that relationship now with Warsaw so again obviously living away I hadn't had the chance to go in my teenage years I went to Warsaw a lot almost every single home game especially in my childhood I went every home game in my childhood because they used to take us after training and then I I went sort of sporadically through my adulthood as well whenever I was back from Spain or whenever I was uh, you know having any sort of extended period of time here I remember in 2014 or 2015 going to the, at the, that time, the Johnson's Paint Trophy final. I think it's called Papa John's now. To see us lose, I think, 3-0 to Bristol City at Wembley. That was awesome. And, you know, going sort of to the odd home game, the odd away game. Um, but now that I'm sort of permanently back in England, permanently back in the black country, I decided I'm going to start going every week. Um, this is going to be my home now. I'm going to put down some roots here, and, and this is going to be like my team, coupled with Man City. Man City will be more like... You know, if you're an English fan of the Buffalo Bills or whatever. I don't know a lot about American sports, but you know, you see on Twitter, English guys sort of like, you know, I'm a Spurs fan and I'm like a Bucks fan or I'm like a Cavaliers, whatever. Those guys who watch like NBA or NHL or whatever, it's sort of like a TV fandom. It's like uh, Man City is sort of like, I, I like watching them on the TV. I'll try and go to some games if I can. And I like them to, in terms of like, oh, it's so entertaining, great players. Hope the players do well, rooting for the players, good for them. But it isn't sort of like, there's no sort of, it was different back in the day because Man City was sort of like the ugly sister and they sort of represented, it, it was It was kind of like the narrative was Man United was the team for people who aren't even from Manchester, usually Londoners. Uh, sorry, Man United, sorry, was that. Um, the sort of, you know, what we are now. <laughs> they were already that like 20 years ago and I, I really, you know, didn't like that. And I... When Man City came to Warsaw, I was like, oh, this other Manchester team, that's cool. Like, and I came to realize that they were like the, the Manchester team. They were for like the actual working class people of Manchester. So when they were sort of climbing up and doing well, you really felt like that was giving something to the city of Manchester, to like the people from there and sort of, you know, giving them hope. And it really felt like it meant something. Um, I don't feel that anymore. 
But now with Warsaw, obviously I do, like it's, especially because I live here in this town. So if our team does well, it will actually have bene- it will have benefits for the people here, people I know, even me. So I'm definitely establishing that connection again. And this year I've been to almost every home game. Uh, I was there yesterday to see us draw nil-nil with Rochdale. Very frustrating result because I thought we played so, so well, but we just weren't ruthless enough to pull the trigger. Uh, there were so many instances where you were just screaming, take a shot. You know, you're like 10 yards out. There's only one guy in front of you. Drop your shoulder and shoot. And they just wouldn't do it. And that was frustrating because I felt like our players deserved more than that. I'm happy that we got the clean sheet because defensively we were outstanding. I mean, they were they were sort of goal-saving blocks and tackles from almost everyone in the back line from Stephen Ward who we are honoured to have, you know, um, Premier League stalwart, Republic of Ireland international. At left-back, he's he's so reliable for us uh, in everything he does. And he put in some crucial blocks. Um, Big Monty, as we call him, uh, Monte, I suppose you should say, and Meneyese at centre-back were, you know, extremely strong. And man of the match, Khan at right-back was, uh, was fantastic. But I won't bore you with listing all the players and everything like that. But but it was a great performance and I felt like we deserved all three points, but we got the point. We are we I think I think we're now five points outside the playoffs, which is what I'm hoping for is a sort of unlikely playoff push. Because I know that we were scrapping to get out of the relegation zone last season and to stay in the football league. But we've brought in Matty Taylor. He's a young sort of dynamic coach we're playing the ball on the ground which in league two is not always the case uh we're trying to be expansive we're trying to be confident we're trying to pass trying to have great touches great passes create chances score goals and that's what we're going for and it's it's fantastic it's what you want from your team and if we can just it's not even that we're like sort of not clinical it's that we don't actually shoot to even have the chance to be clinical so it wouldn't sound like it because yesterday we had 15 shots and that's sort of a normal occurrence. We often have like that number of shots, but the problem is a load of them were like sort of pop shots from outside the box. That's the only time we actually try and shoot, whereas there'll be occasions where the opportunity is much clearer to shoot and George Miller or Connor Wilkinson or Kieran Phillips, whoever's in that position, will, just will not pull the trigger. And I think that um, can be our downfall. But overall, I'm I'm optimistic about the season. Really pleased with the performance yesterday and in general. We uh, we went on a run of I think seven games unbeaten in the league, and then we lost uh, in our last game before this one. So now we need to get on another unbeaten run, and we need to turn some of these draws into wins as well. But I'm really optimistic about about our season. Now, to look very briefly outside of England. I'd like to just do a quick cursory glance at the top leagues around Europe. Starting with La Liga, again, some of these things might change because this is only at the time of recording. But starting in La Liga, it's shaping up to be fascinating at the top when when you've got what looks like at the moment a really hotly anticipated four-horse race between Sevilla, Sociedad and the usual suspects Real and Atleti. It's been uh, it's been eventful to say the least, and with Barcelona dropping off as much as they have, I expect that now Xavi is back, 
probably they'll finish in the top four because they'll probably have a great season now um, without going into too much detail. And probably, at the very least, Sociedad won't be able to maintain what they're doing. And we'll probably end up with the same top top four that we've had sort of recently with Sevilla, Real, Atleti and Barca. But who knows who's going to win the league? I, I think Barca probably won't. I think that'll be too much to ask. But I think they'll probably finish fourth. And I think it'll be... I think my favourite would be Real Madrid to win the league. Um, but Atleti and Sevilla will push them all the way. And, and, and not only that, but just below them, you've got teams like Osasuna and um, Bayacano, who've sort of dropped off a little bit recently, but in general have been having a phenomenal season, being right up there, you know, at least challenging for the Europa League. Can they maintain that? Uh, you know, usual suspects like Villarreal, Valencia are kind of caught slipping. And maybe that leaves open a space for these, you know, quote-unquote smaller clubs to to do something pretty historic, especially in the case of Bayacano, with the aforementioned Radamel Falcao up front. Maybe they can do something crazy and finish in the top six, which would be awesome. I think La Liga is a lot more competitive and a lot more fascinating this year than it's been in past years. And it seems like that work that the league have done to try and break up the Barca-Real monopoly has is working. Whether it will translate into us seeing a title won by someone who isn't them or Atleti, whether that will ever happen remains to be seen. But at the very least, it's more interesting from top to bottom of the table. But my favourites are still Madrid. I think um, with Ancelotti at the helm, uh, they might not be quite the team that they used to be, but I think that they will be efficient. I think he'll play the players in the right position where they want to play. He'll make them happy. He'll make them feel wanted. He's a sort of... It's, now Now in his later career, I think he's... And in general, I think it always was like that. He's a very good people person. But I don't want to just lump him in with, you know, with the likes of Oli because I think there's a lot more to him tactically than that. I mean, the, the guy's arguably one of the best managers in the history of the game and one of the best players also. So I don't think that would be fair. But... One of his key strengths is um, harmony in the group, happy, confident players. And I think they've got enough quality there in the team to probably edge the league if they can just have a positive experience. And I think Ancelotti will bring that to them. But they'll have other teams right on their tail, I think. But don't take it from me. Let's find out in a little bit more detail just how well Los Blancos have started the season from managing Madrid's very own Ohm Arvind. At the middle of November, things look pretty solid for Real Madrid. They sit tied with Sevilla on points in second place with a game in hand on first place Real Sociedad. Karim Benzema running away as the league's top scorer with 10 goals. And just in general, his blistering form has been brilliant to watch and has put him in firm Ballon d'Or contention with people like Lionel Messi and Robert Lewandowski. And he's kind of been the driving force behind Real Madrid's success this season. But obviously, we cannot forget about Vinicius Jr., who has nine goals across all competitions, who's been absolutely magnificent and seems to have finally touched that sky-high potential that we all knew he could reach but weren't sure when exactly that was going to happen. And it's probably part of Ancelotti's most significant achievement so far in his second stint as Real Madrid manager is kind of getting this out of Vinicius. Obviously, Vinicius deserves most of the credit, but Ancelotti now famously said that he told Vinicius to only take one touch 
and two touches before shooting and, and, and attempting to score instead of the four or five touches that he often took as he kind of was unsure of himself, didn't have confidence. And I'm sure that in in conjunction with him spending time with a sports psychologist and just all the work he's put in over this, these, these years has contributed to just this absolute explosion from him. And he's just genuinely a bonafide superstar now. And him along with Karim Benzema, those two are the biggest reasons for, for Real Madrid's success up until this point, a relative success, I guess. And it's kind of why Real Madrid fans feel okay about where the team is at this point. And yet there's also this sense that things could be better. Real Madrid's offense is just about the same as last year in terms of underlying numbers, in terms of expected goals. The big difference this season is the finishing, obviously, with Vinicius. And then you add in Karim Benzema, who's also overperforming. So there's kind of a sense there that, okay, how sustainable is this? But really, it's about the defense, which has gotten you know a couple points worse from last season. It's just about 10th in the league, which is probably not good enough to be league winners. Obviously, there's time to turn that around. But Ancelotti has spent a lot of games now swapping back and forth between multiple lineups, multiple personnel, trying to figure out the right balance he can institute. And ultimately, it may not be a question of lineup. Ancelotti's famed for being able to find the perfect 11 to make everything work. But when you lose Sergio Ramos, when you lose Rafael Varane, at a certain point, it maybe becomes a little structural. And, and that's kind of where Real Madrid is at at the moment. In a good position in the league, they've had some scares in the Champions League, particularly against Sharif, but in a good position there, everything's shaping up nicely with Vinicius and Benzema's form, but there still feels like there's a lot of work that needs to be done on a more fundamental tactical level, and that's basically what is either going to probably make or break the rest of Real Madrid's season. So before we go to our last guest, let's just take a really brief look at, I guess you would say, the three other big leagues. So after the events at the weekend, the Bundesliga is looking a bit more interesting than it looked like it was going to be because it looked like Bayern was sort of stretching out again. But after they've slipped up at the weekend and uh, Dortmund have capitalized, we now have uh, a one-point gap between the top two. And you might just see something interesting happen this year, finally. Um, Because I think it's nine in a row for Bayern which, uh, you know, it's... I, there's a lot I love about the Bundesliga, really. There is. The, the, the fan movements over there, the atmospheres in their stadiums, the price of their tickets, the, the general... The way that they treat uh, brands and, and sort of corporations with suspicion, the general way that they protect their game, I think, is to be lauded. But they really need to do something about this Bayern winning every single year thing. It's getting stupid now. It's on par with Scottish football at this point. Um, and I think it does cheapen the brand. I feel I felt like if I was an American just getting into soccer, thinking, you know, oh, this looks cool, what shall I watch? I know that the argument will be, oh, but the football is so exciting, you know, there's loads of goals, and there is, the gold, it, it just the amount of goals scored is is phenomenal, and, you know, oh, it's, it's so great to watch and so competitive, and it might be in those individual matches competitive, but I'm sorry, if I was an American fan, I wouldn't be like, let's follow this league where I know for a fact who's going to win it. Especially coming from their culture where I don't know too much about it, but from what I can understand, 
they because of the draft systems and stuff like that that they have they sort of protect their games from becoming so predictable and boring so you don't have sometimes you can have these dynasties where like uh, Chicago Bulls can win like five titles in a row or whatever but in general that as far as I can tell it's it's quite like fun and, and different teams can win and you have sort of you know you you, you never know what's going to happen type thing whereas uh, so if I was one of them watching I'd, I'd be like okay Premier League obviously and now maybe La Liga is starting to sort of challenge that Serie A it's starting to come back in terms of being more interesting but I think Bundesliga is dropping and dropping in my eyes as, as an interesting proposition when you've got Bayern Munich winning every single year. So any neutral or anyone who cares about the German game being viable as a global product will be hoping that Dortmund can win the league this year and at least make it more of a sort of two-team league, at least make it a little bit more interesting. And that looks more likely today than it did um, well, two days ago now that Bayern have slipped up against Augsburg and let Dortmund back in. Bringing us to Serie A, which, as I said, is getting a lot more fascinating after Juventus's uh, equally annoying endless run uh, was brought to an end by Inter last season. We're set to have another new champ, it seems, because when Allegri came back to Juve in the summer, I think a lot of people, myself included, thought, OK, here we go, Inter are in turmoil. Uh, you know, they've got financial worries. Um, you know, Conte's gone, Lukaku's gone, Hakimi's gone. Okay, they're not winning anything. And Juve will just walk back to winning the league and win it for another 10 years in a row or whatever. But uh, apparently not, because uh, it hasn't gone quite to plan. They've won their last two, so they're picking up a little bit of momentum, but they're still down there in seventh. 11 points off the top spot, Juve. It would have to be fairly miraculous for them to win the league at this point. Into themselves are seven points adrift. Uh, I imagine both Inter and Juve will be challenging for the top four and probably finishing in the top four, but I don't think either of them are going to have enough to catch the emerging contenders in Napoli and Milan, neither of whom have won the league uh, in a blue moon. So it's going to be fascinating to have probably a new champion, not as in a new for the first time, but uh, a new champion who isn't Inter in this case, uh, or the one before Juve. So uh, so it's fascinating there. The, the other thing, I guess, that is interesting to watch in Italy is the uh, meltdown of Mourinho, of course. Uh, they started well, Roma. It did look a little bit like, ooh, Tammy Abraham scored a couple of goals. Ooh, you know, they've got Mourinho and they're doing okay. Can they do something crazy? You're just sort of, you know, dreaming that maybe another Inter could be, another sort of uh, Mourinho's Inter scenario could be happening. But no, any fears of that were quickly put to bed. It's already fallen completely off a cliff. He's already buried the whole squad in press conferences multiple times. They lost 6-1 to... I think it's fair to call Birdo Glimt minnows from from Norway. And you shouldn't... What they're doing is actually pretty exciting, though, to be fair. Their manager looks like he's doing a sort of revolution there. We could be seeing another sort of Ostersons under Potter type vibe. But they... Still, they shouldn't be beating Roma 6-1. And I think in the reverse fixture, Roma only managed to like eke out a draw to get their revenge back. Probably not even going to challenge for the top four, which I think would have been minimum requirement. No one would have expected them to win the league. No one would have expected them to even finish in the top four, but they would have been expected to like try <laughs> to at least challenge. Whereas now I think they'll be struggling to finish in the top half. He'll probably be gone by Christmas and I guess we'll see what happens after that. But like I said, apart from that, it should be a fascinating battle for the top four because there are a lot of teams, not only the ones we mentioned, but Atalanta, Lazio, Fiorentina, 
who are all good enough to finish up there. They're all going to be vying for those European places, whether it's Champions League, Europa League, or Conference League. I just think that the title race itself is shaping up to be a two-horse race between Napoli and Milan. There is a lot of football to be played, so that could change. But I'd be shocked if it wasn't one of those two lifting the trophy. And I think that's a good thing. Something new, something different. Uh, We're not going to have something new or something different in League Earn, predictably. We can say that it's different in that it's different to last season because Lille um, finally broke PSG's, you know, 590-year winning streak in League 1 and uh, won the league, which was, you know, I think at least on par with what Montpellier did. Not quite on par with what Leicester did, but definitely something like that. In winning the league, it it really was spectacular, but the drop-off has been pretty spectacular they're 12th on 17 points they're already 20 points adrift after 14 games which is absolutely insane for a champion um they're probably not even going to get in europe i wouldn't think they'll even be threatening the conference league places at this point they need to get a run together if they're going to at least be up there doing that but the league is of course already over they really could end now the only reason they don't is because the rest of the teams have things to play for in terms of staying in the league or achieving europe or maybe they get more TV rights money depending on where they finish. But in terms of the actual act of trying to win the league, France is a country where the other teams aren't really... That isn't really a consideration, I don't think. You don't really go into the season thinking, can we win the league? Because you know the answer is no. PSG are 12 points clear after 14 games. I would say France's league is is actually on par with um, with the Scottish Premiership in terms of interest. I, I would I can't imagine how anyone watches that. On a regular basis, I just I just don't know how. I guess like the Bundesliga, the argument is, well, the actual football itself is exciting and it can be. There are a fair few goals scored. There's a lot of quality players, quality young players. I mean, France is sort of the conveyor belt for quality youngsters who end up going to the Premier League or other leagues. And Germany's sort of like the conveyor belt for quality managers, it seems. But both leagues need to address this sort of domination at the top if they want to be, I think if they want to be globally viable, I don't know if it's a coincidence that the Premier League is far and away the most popular league in the world. I would say it's because it's by far the most fascinating at the top table. So that's why it's more viable. When in my lifetime, there's been Man United, Arsenal, Man City, Chelsea and Liverpool have all won the league, unless I'm forgetting someone, and Blackburn. That's in my lifetime. Um, But if you take Blackburn out of it, that's five teams who all of them are huge dynasties who realistically have a chance of winning the league. Maybe not Arsenal right now, but, you know, that's sort of, that's the historical framework. Whereas in my lifetime, I mean, has anyone won it in Germany other than, uh, I guess there were those couple of years, did Wolfsburg win it once? But basically it's Bayern and Dortmund. In Ligue 1, it was pretty interesting before PSG came around with the money, actually. They did have a more viable league then. Um, In La Liga, it's always been the two and Atleti sometimes. And I think the Premier League in, in that case is is the more fascinating thing to look out for. By far the most interesting league in the world, and that's why it's so widely watched. If leagues like E-League Un and Bundesliga want to compete with that, one key thing they need to address is find a way for other teams to be able to compete with PSG and Bayern. But that leaves us now with our final guest. I want to quickly take a cursory glance, probably for the first time this season, I have to be completely honest, at the Greek Super League table. And the team at the top is Olympiakos. They are three points clear of AEK Athens in second, four points clear of Pauk in third. So as I can't pretend to know anything about Greek football or Olympiakos, 
I think it's better that we just hear it from the horse's mouth. So we're going to hear from a journalist who writes for Marca in Madrid, but is a huge Olympiacos fan. We're going to hear from Panos Kostopoulos, who was kind enough to come on the show uh, very early in our in our run, actually, uh, to speak about Greece. I think he was our second or third guest uh, back in the Ander days. He came on to talk to us about Greece because we were in the Euros, we were doing international teams. We're going to have him on down the line for a longer episode because we want to get his thoughts on Olympiakos in terms of the history, the fan culture, um, this season, of course. But for now, we're just going to hear a couple minutes of his thoughts on Olympiakos' season so far. Well, to begin with and provide you with some context, expectations have been raised at Olympiakos over the last two years as coach uh, Martins has helped the team dominate in Greece and look very solid in Europe where they reached the last 16 of the Europa League last season, arguably playing some good football on their way. Um, the problem is that Olympiacos received two huge blows in summer, as arguably the most talented Greek player, Kostas Fortunis, picked up a serious injury and he will be sidelined for several months. And their best defender, Ruben Semedo, was arrested over rape uh, allegations of a minor, so he was suspended by the club and he only recently returned to training. The problem is that the season didn't start ideally for the team as they were knocked out by Ludo Goretz in the Champions League qualifiers and this elimination didn't sit well with fans and board with coach Martins being accused because he was trying out a new back three formations which didn't really work out in the qualifiers. However, uh, President uh, Marinakis placed his confidence in the coach and since then they are doing fairly well both in the league and in Europe as they top the league table and they are second in the group in the Europa League group which consists of Fenerbahce, Eintracht Frankfurt and Antwerp. Well to get the top spot in the group they need uh, to win both games and wish that Eintracht Frankfurt drop at least four points against Fenerbahce and Adver, which is not going to be very easy. Uh, meanwhile, in Greece, Olympiakos are topping the league table. They are unbeaten, but the problem is that they have scored only 15 goals after nine games, and this for Olympiakos is a bit tricky because their fans are used to completely dominate in Greece and grab comfortable 3-4 5-0 wins over a weaker opponents. The thing is that media have been criticizing uh, Martins again, this time for his rotation policy because they are blaming him that he is not resting starters so the team is looking more tired during games and they don't play the exciting football they used to play last year, for example. However, fans have stood by Martins. And if you want my personal opinion, I don't think that the players are tired. I just think that Martins has changed his tactics and he wants his team to sit back and not play high-intensity football due to the congested schedule after the whole coronavirus outbreak. Meanwhile, the two players who have arguably stood out so far this season are the Greek winger Yorgos Masuras, who has been involved in 10 Olympiacos goals in all competitions so far this season. He scored the six and assisted the other four. And Adibu Kamara, a youngster, a 24-year-old, 
who has joined Olympiacos from Lille. He did so last summer and he was brought in to join the B team, but since then he has established himself into the starting lineup with some very mature performances in the midfield. Thank you so much, Panos, and thank you so much for listening to today's special episode. I hope it wasn't too annoying with my constant rambling. But don't worry, have no fear, because next week we are back with our normal coverage with a fresh interview with Jamie Smith from The Mag. And we're going to talk about one of the most fascinating stories in the world of football right now, which is Newcastle United. With the Saudi takeover, with Eddie Howe, new style of play, January transfer window... Steve Bruce, Mike Ashley. I mean, it's just um, because there is a lot to cover there. So hopefully we won't go over six hours talking about all that. If you have a question for Jamie about Newcastle, whether you're a Newcastle fan or not, please feel free to tweet me or DM me. Uh, I'm at Craig Sportacos. Or you can send us an email to show at sportacos.com about the show or about any club, really, even if it's not the one we're covering that week. Just send, send me an email, send me a DM. We'll definitely read it out. We'll definitely talk about it. We want to hear from fans of all clubs. Uh, Like I said, thank you so much for sticking with me in this long special edition episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed, on the rare chance that you enjoyed this, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That's really important to a podcast of our size. We're trying to grow. Uh, We're trying to give a voice to fans, to bloggers, content creators, YouTubers, journalists, people who love their clubs and uh, we can't do that without your help so we, we really do appreciate that so thank you so much for listening to the sport across football stories podcast have a great week and we'll see you again next week with jamie and newcastle united sports social podcast network step into the world of power loyalty and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.